part two of a conversation we started last week. Uh, we're sort of doing a two-part series, real short, that we're calling In the Foxhole. Now, we sort of use this metaphor uh, for um, the time we spend with God ducking below the chaos of life. You can think about the foxholes that soldiers dig in war zones as their place to duck down below all the shrapnel and the flak and all, all the stuff that's sort of exploding around them. And you can think about your life and how many urgent things there are to get your attention, how many tasks, how many important conversations you need to have, and things at work, and things with your family, and things that take your attention and distract, and you can almost think of it as, as exploding around you. And so it's so important that as followers of Jesus that we take intentional time to duck below the chaos, be still with the Lord, and allow His presence to change us. And last week we talked about the theory or the, the big picture of what this looks like. We talked about uh, the four movements of what, uh, what happens in this, this quiet time with God. And uh, the first one we talked about, this first movement, just a quick refresher from last week, the first movement we called reorient and replenish, as in we reorient ourselves to God, remembering that He is God, we are not. He is creator, we are not. He is in control, we are not. And we, we are replenished by our Heavenly Father. The stores of love are poured back into our hearts to remember that He is the source of all of the love and all of the goodness that we want to pour out into the world. So we reorient, we replenish. The second movement we talked about we called refine and release, where God refines our mission, not just for our whole life, but for any given day. He refines it down to these are the things I have for you to do, and then releases us from all the things that are not ours to worry about. We saw this in the example of the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes, these are the things God wants me to do, and these other things I'm going to leave to him, because God has given me a very specific tasks for my life and for today. And then the third movement we called rest and restore. This is where we get alone with God and we, oh, we breathe. We can finally release and relax, and in that place of resting in Christ, anything in us that is wounded, weary, burdened, run dry, he begins to heal and restore. So you can sort of think about the, the image we used last week was streams of water in a desert, right, irrigating a dry land. And then the fourth movement we called power and presence. And this one, this one doesn't start with an R on purpose. Uh, my life group last week was like, why didn't the fourth one start with an R? Because this is, this is totally the, the, like different than the other ones. This is what everything else is leading towards. We get to experience the power of God's Spirit in our lives and live by His presence throughout every day all week long, all year long, we become people of power and of presence. And this is sort of what we're all aiming for, right? All of us can, can look at that and go, yeah, I want to live my life by the power of God's Spirit and in His presence. If you're a follower of Jesus, that probably sounds kind of appealing to you. But we get there by going through all of these other movements and taking that intentional time in the foxhole with God. Last week, we landed on this verse to close. This is John chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And we can look at that and go, I want rivers of living water to flow from within me. From within me. Have you ever met people that, that when you're around them, you just, you're refreshed? Because rivers of living water 
flow from within them. People that when you're around them, your to-do list fades to the back of your mind because rivers of living water are flowing from within them. People that, that when you're around them, you can sort of be yourself for once because live, rivers of living water are flowing from within them. And we can look at that and go, I want that. And we talked about how if you want water to flow from within, then you need to go to the well. And Jesus is the source, the well, so we need this quiet foxhole time to duck below the surface. So last week, the hope was to give us a big picture of what happens in this quiet time with God and to convince us all, myself included, that this is an essential factor in our life as followers of Jesus. And then I promised that this week we would get really practical, really nuts and bolts. How does this work? What does this time look like? When do we do it? How do we do it? And we're specifically going to talk about Scripture, which is an important part of that time, hearing from God, how to read the Scriptures, and prayer, how to talk to God. What does our prayer life look like? And again, we're going to look at the example of Jesus to do this. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As you're opening... Uh, and first of all, I should also say, I'm going to move pretty fast because I, I have probably what is probably a foolish amount of content to cover today. Uh, but we're going to, I believe in you, <laughs> we're going to do this. It's going to work. Uh, it sort of worked last service, so we're going to be fine. So uh, as you're moving to Matthew chapter 5, uh, I want to bring up a few verses that we looked at last week and just sort of mind them, not for theory or, or ideas, but for practical tools for our quiet time with God. So we looked last week at uh, Luke chapter 4, the example of Jesus spending time alone with his Father. And remember verse 42 of Luke chapter 4 said this, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Two things I read here. So... Um, some things we do as Christians because Jesus directly commanded us. Many, many things we do as Christians because Jesus practiced them regularly and we are to follow the example of Jesus, right? If we're going to be apprentices of Jesus, if he's to be our teacher and we're to be his disciples, we do as he does. So this, this going out in the early morning to a solitary place is something Jesus does over and over and over in the Gospels, the stories of his life. We're going to talk about that later, but, but notice, first of all, that he makes a practice of this. Not a one-time thing, not a once-a-year retreat. He makes a practice of going out. So the first thing we learn is that your foxhole time, your quiet time with God needs to be regular. Some people would say it has to be every single day. Some people would say three times a week, whatever. I don't know. I don't know. You talk to the Lord. But it has to be a regular returning to that quiet space with him. Also notice Jesus goes at daybreak. And we talked about this, how uh, Jesus had been working late into the night the night before, healing people. The crowds were pressing on around him so much that he didn't have time to eat. Have you ever been so busy you didn't have time to eat? Yet he gets up at daybreak. I think there's a few reasons for this. As the psalmist says, God's mercies are new every morning. There's a sense in which the morning is, is a quiet space before the chaos begins. Uh, the, the, the famous secular American philosopher Henry David Thoreau says that there's a part of us that is only awake in the morning. I think that is true. Or as the, the uh, Christian theologian C.S. Lewis puts it, I have to quote C.S. Lewis, right? At some point, we have to. Uh, as he puts it, he says, the, the real battle of the Christian life begins when most people least expect it, first thing when they wake up in the morning, because all of the anxieties, tasks, hopes, and promises for the day come rushing at you, and your first task as a Christian is to push them all away and listen to the voice and the will of God. And as he says, come in out of the wind, or duck down into the foxhole. 
That's the first task, first thing in the morning. Why? Because as soon as you step out the door and you get up and you start working, you start doing stuff, everything else is going to come rushing at you. Remember, God is drawing you to himself, but there are powers in this world, spiritual powers as well as cultural powers that are trying to pull your attention elsewhere. And so first thing in the morning, I try to always, even before I get out of bed, I try to just dedicate my day to the Lord. I'm not much of a morning person, so there are a few things I do before I sit down with the Bible in the morning, but I know that if I get out of bed or, or check my phone before I dedicate my day to the Lord, then I'm already starting on the wrong foot. So oftentimes my alarm will go off, I'll press snooze, and I'll spend that snooze time rolling over on my other side and just going, God, okay, not my will, your will today, Okay. And I've got a lot to accomplish today, but I want to, I want to tune into you. Help me tune into you. Okay. And then I might doze off for a minute. And then I might wake back up and go, okay, Lord, and <laughs> whatever you bring, bring to me today, may I take it as a gift from you. May I, may I use it for your kingdom and your glory. And I might snooze a little bit longer. And then I might wake up again. And I might, right? So I just don't get out of bed until I have dedicated my day to the Lord in some way. That's sort of my practice. But sometime in the morning, before you jump out into the battlefield and leap out of the foxhole, you got to make sure you're geared up. you got to make sure that you're prepared. you got to make sure that if everything comes rushing at you for your day and your life and your family and your work, if it all comes rushing at you, that you are prepared, that you have already had this time, even if it's just a short time before you get out of bed, to be with the Lord. So Jesus goes early in the morning, and we talked about this last week, Jesus goes to a solitary place. He gets alone. We talked about how that might mean for you taking your phone off the hook if you still have a landline. might mean actually going on a hike somewhere way out alone, right? It might mean uh, that you just go to your back porch where no one can find you. It might mean that you get up 20 minutes before your kids. It might mean that you take this little device and you turn it off. It, these turn off and it's not just to reset them. Did you know that? Turn it off. Uh, maybe put it in a different room. Maybe bury it under a pillow somewhere. Uh, I, what I have discovered about this device, um, Paul says in, uh, in 2 Corinthians that uh, everything is permissible, as in there's lots of things we're allowed to do, but not everything is helpful, he says. And he says again, everything, everything I, I'm allowed to do anything, as in there's lots of things in the world I can participate in, but he says I will not be mastered by anything. I find that very applicable to this little device right here. I've come to believe that this device, uh, in many ways, I'm just going to go on a little rabbit trail here, is uh, an unconscious or subconscious attempt by many human beings to play God. Here's what I mean by that. What are the supernatural divine attributes of God? So the the first three we think of, right, are omniscience, being all-knowing, omnipresence, being all places at all times, and omnipotence, being all-powerful. With this device... The time between my not knowing something and looking it up and knowing it is so brief, it almost seems as if I know it all. With this device, I can be, have the illusion of being present to many different people in many parts of the world all at the same time. With this device, it gives me an illusion of absolute control or power over my own life, right? Isn't this a life control device? Isn't that how it's sold to us? So what I've discovered for myself is that if I want to get reoriented with God, get in the foxhole with him, I have to be in a place and a position where this device does not have the power to distract me. So I turn it off. I turn it off. And I put it in another room so I don't even think about it. 
I know some people like to look at or read the Bible on their phones. Did you know with the Bible app on your phone, you can actually download a copy of whatever translation of the Bible you're reading and then turn your phone on airplane mode so you can read the Bible and no text messages or notifications will interrupt you. You can do that. Or maybe it's inconvenient, but maybe you look on the, the Bible app and you go, okay, what's in my reading plan for today? That, that, and that. Write it down. Grab a real Bible and read it. It's inconvenient. It's not fun. It's a little bit annoying, but I want to make sure that I get alone with the Lord. Why? Because I'm after that power and that presence. So Jesus gets up early in the morning. He goes to a solitary place. And then last week we also read Mark 4, where it says in verse 31, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Notice that the place he goes to is quiet. You can sort of be alone in your car while you're driving, but is it quiet? Probably not. I told you last week I have a friend who does quiet time in their car, but they park their car, roll up the windows, and get in a quiet place. So Jesus shows us the practice that our time is to be regular, right? A practice of regular time in the foxhole with God. It is to be a time that is either early in the morning, or you might think of it as the best time, a best part of your day, right? For some of us, it's the morning. For some of us, it's not. So I, I do a prayer of dedication. Then I do a little bit of stuff that I need to do, and then I sit down when I'm ready with the Lord, right? He also shows us a practice of getting alone with God, solitude, solitary, and he gets, shows us the practice of being quiet, a quiet space with God to hear the still, small voice of his spirit. And then, uh, as we think about the content of this time, as we think about what are we going to do with this time, two things immediately pop to the surface, right? Scripture reading to hear from God and prayer to commune with God. And Jesus also shows us practices of this. In Matthew chapter 5 and 6, it's the famous passage of the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is sort of giving us the, the baseline rules of the universe. He's saying life in the kingdom of God looks like this. And he gives us an example of how to interact with the scriptures. So I'm going to start reading in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 17. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law till everything is accomplished. So Jesus is, first of all, reminding us of the power and authority of Scripture. Many people say, I'm really into Jesus, but not so much into the Old Testament, or not so much into the Bible, or not so much into church doctrine, but I'm really into Jesus. The problem is, Jesus is really into Scripture. He says, the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. Law and the prophets was a first century Jewish code word for all of the Old Testament. All of it. Jesus revered it, and in fidelity to Jesus, I also need to base my life upon it, just as he did. Jesus reverences the scriptures, and he says this really important thing, that all of it is leading to him. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All of it leads and points to Jesus. So if we have the spirit of Jesus within us, when we commune with him, all of scripture becomes relevant. All of it becomes something that he can speak to us through. I kid you not, I have a friend who got saved and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time through reading the book of Leviticus. If you know the Bible, the book of Leviticus is a long list of ceremonial rules. God, he was struck by the holiness of God reading the book of Leviticus and came to trust in Jesus. 
All of Scripture becomes relevant to us because it is all leading to its accomplishment and fulfillment in Jesus. So he begins by this base fact, remembering that this Scripture is relevant to my actual present relationship to the one I'm trying to follow. And then skip down to verse 21. Jesus in chapter 5 begins to take these Old Testament passages and sort of exegete them or sort of pick them apart uh, in a really interesting way that we can learn from. I'm going to point out three things that he does here. So starting in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. He's quoting the Ten Commandments, right? Great idea, don't murder people. Cool. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So Jesus says, here's the command, here's the scripture, here's the text that you learned. But there's more going on here than just God trying to get us not to murder each other, because for most of us, that's not really a problem. There are other things in place, either culturally or personally or legally, that are keeping us from doing so, right, morally. There are lots of things in place that are, it's not really a problem. I don't go around going, oh, I'm really struggling with that. Some of us might, but most of us know, right? But Jesus is going, there's more going on here than just a prohibition of a specific act. Jesus is asking a question that I think is essential anytime we approach the Scriptures. When we read the Bible, we want to ask ourselves all the time some variation of this question. What? Two weeks in a row on the whiteboard. Isn't that fun? It's almost like a classroom. What is God doing here? What is God doing here? You might say, what is God trying to say to me? Some variation on that question. What is God doing here? Okay, he says, don't murder. What is he doing? He's trying to change something about the way our hearts work. Oh, he's trying to change the position, the posture of our heart that maybe won't murder, but would if it had the opportunity. Have you ever been so mad that you're like, oh, I could just murder them? He's trying to change that posture of our heart trying to change the way we deal with each other, trying to remove the anger, trying to give us hearts that don't respond in rage and contempt. What is God doing here? I see this all the time. I was talking to some friends about um, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes two nights ago. We were talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. If you know the book of Ecclesiastes, it's where Solomon basically talks about all of his experiences of worldliness and wealth and power and sex and money and all this stuff. Talks about all of it, and he calls it all meaningless. And so when I read the book, I was telling them, when I read the book of Ecclesiastes and ask, what is God doing here? I think he is trying to make me despair of ever finding fulfillment in anything of this world. What is God doing here? When you read the scriptures, just ask yourself, what is God doing here? What is God trying to say to me? What is God speaking? What is God saying? What's he really after from me in this little passage of Scripture? So Jesus kind of unpacks that for us with this Old Testament command. And then he goes on in verse 23. He says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift here in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is then taking this, what is God doing here? He's taking the answer to that. He's overlaying it on a real-life example so that something can be revealed. When we read the Scriptures and ask, what is God doing here? Then we get to let the Scripture read us. 
We often think about reading the Scriptures, studying the Scriptures. Have you ever let the Scriptures study you? When we talk about studying the Scriptures, what kind of just unconsciously, subtly happens in our minds is we look at the Scriptures and we go, we, we become the authority, right? We are an authority over them. We go, I, as the primary mind at work in this situation, will mine the truth out of this Scripture, and then I, as the primary will involved in this uh, situation, will apply that truth to my life. Whereas if we let the Scriptures read us, they will challenge our assumptions, they will refine our ways of thinking, they will lead us in new directions, they will bring up Rem- uh, memories, right? You'll be praying at the altar, you'll be praying, you'll be reading the scriptures, and you'll be- read something about anger like Jesus just did, and you'll remember, I have this anger issue with somebody, it is unresolved, and you will get up off of your knees, and you will go be reconciled to that person. So Jesus asks, what is God doing here? What's he trying to say, really? And then he lets the scriptures read our lives. He lets them sort of mine our lives for where things need to change. And then he goes on in verse 25, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus is going, here's what God is saying. Here's a specific example that needs to be uh, dealt with at the time. But then he doesn't leave it there, as in, okay, I was reconciled to that person. I've got anger down. Woo! Got it figured out. Now my relationships will all be perfect. What he understands is that specific situation where the scriptures become active in our lives is God's foot in the door because he wants to not just change the one situation, he wants to change everything about how we relate to others, right? He, want, he wants to change our whole way of thinking. And so then he gives, starts to broaden it out here. Jesus says, it's not just about being reconciled to that one person, but also settle matters quickly with your adversary, What does the world say to do? Fight it out. What does Jesus say to do? Reconcile. What does the world say to do? Get the law on your side, go to court. What does Jesus say to do? Reconcile. You begin to shift your way of thinking from a worldly way to a Christ-like way. And you change, you begin to change by the power of the Scriptures. Read this in Romans 12, chapter, or chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Scriptures have the power to renew our minds, to change our ways of thinking, and not just fix one, two, three examples in our lives, but change the way we live all of it. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a great verse to memorize and kind of easy to memorize, right? 3.16 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What this is saying is that the Scriptures are not just a book like any other book sitting on your shelf, that the words and ideas expressed in these pages are divine. They are the breath of God. The breath of God, that same breath that created the universe, is given to you in these pages. It's God-breathed, and what can it do? It can teach you, rebuke and correct you, and it can train you to live rightly. It can train you in righteousness. The words of the Scriptures, when we let God get a foot in the door in our lives, will begin to transform not just one or two situations, but our very being. The Scriptures have the power then to change us. 
This is what I call, we let our, I'm going to explain this after I write it, orthodoxy become orthopraxy. And what that means, orthodoxy is a word used throughout Christian history and throughout theology to, to say right thinking, right belief. And as Christians, oftentimes, that's, where we, that's why we read the Scriptures, right? We want to learn something new. Jesus wasn't after just giving people new knowledge or right thinking. He was after giving people orthopraxy or proper, right, true practice. He wasn't after just making people who knew different things. He was after, after making people who live different lives. And the Scriptures, if we let them get that foot in the door in our lives, will teach us a ton but we can't just stop there. We have to be willing to let them also change the way we practice our lives, change everything about how we live our lives. And so we let this new knowledge be worked out in our actions. I'm going to talk about this a little more later when we talk about prayer, but I will say this now, that oftentimes we judge the success of our quiet time with God by how we feel when we're done right? Do I feel comforted after reading the Scriptures? And is there comfort in the Scripture? Yes. Is there courage in the Scripture? Yes. Is there joy in the Scripture? Yes. Is there peace? Yes. All this stuff is true. But the true litmus test for if we are opening ourselves to the Scriptures is if we were to read the Scripture every single day, asking this question, what is God doing here? And letting the Scripture read us, and then we were to look back on our week and see little moments that we behaved and lived differently. It's amazing. As I do this practice, as I work through the Scripture in this way and open myself up to the Scripture in this way, and it begins to change me, I do so many things that surprise me. Or more often, I don't do things that surprise me. I'm like, normally in that situation, I would have said this. And I leave the situation, I'm like, I didn't say that. That's so weird. I wonder what's going on. And then I go, oh, the Scriptures are actually beginning to turn my orthodoxy or the things I know are right into orthopraxy, things that I do that are right and true. And so this is the, the, the sort of uh, path that the Scripture wants to take in your life. It wants, if we approach the Scriptures in this way, it has divine power to begin to transform us. So as we duck below the chaos and we get in the foxhole and we're after that power and that presence from God, we begin by reading Scriptures and hearing from Him. He initiates a beautiful conversation that can then change us. The other thing that comes to mind when we think about quiet time with God is, of course, prayer. And Jesus talks about that too just one chapter later in Matthew chapter 6. Skip over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And Jesus begins to talk about prayer in a very uh, famous passage that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And he says this. There's a, sort of a paragraph of explanation first that we're going to unpack. Verse 5, Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, he says, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So what, he, what he's saying is these people do their spiritual practices in order to win the acclaim of others. Then, what do they get from doing that? Usually, it's the acclaim of others, and that's it. They don't get the power. They don't get the presence that they're after. They just get the acclaim of others. Why? Because that's, that's what they want. They want the, the acclaim of others. They get it, and that's the fullness of their reward. But, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, right? Get alone. Close the door, right? Quiet place. 
and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you are after power and presence from a quiet, solitary communion with God, guess what you're going to get? He will give you what you seek. Later in chapter 7 of Matthew, he says, those who seek, find. Seek that and you will find it. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is so cool. Jesus is saying, and you don't have to say all the right words. You don't have to have all the, the magic phrases. You don't have to yell really loud. You don't have to climb up to heaven. Why? What he's saying is God is nearer than you think. God is nearer than you think. Begin your time of prayer by reminding yourself that God is nearer than you think. I've started this practice over the last like, year of my life, and it has changed my prayer life completely. Before I speak, before I talk to God, I just quietly remind myself of the truth that God is not somewhere else listening. He is here in this room right next to me, and his ears are open. I just remind myself of that simple practice. God is not there. He is here, and his ears are open. And then I begin to pray. Jesus is reminding us that God is nearer than you think, so that our prayers don't have to be striving, but they can be a restful, honest, simple, vulnerable conversation with our Father. And then he teaches us how to pray in a very famous passage, right? We probably all memorized this at some point. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, he says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So first of all, Jesus begins his time of prayer. I'm going to erase all this. If you want to know what it was, you can come ask me later. So Jesus, when he goes to pray and he reminds himself and he reminds us that God is nearer than we think, he begins with who God is. Begin with who God is. In your quiet prayer time with the Lord in the foxhole, begin with who God is, your Father in heaven. And he, he calls it out a very intimate uh, relationship, right? Father, Son. Paul says in, in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, he says that, this, uh, that we have the same spirit in our hearts that by which we cry Abba or Daddy, Father. It's an intimate Father, Son, Father, Child relationship, Okay? We also can call God Father, but we can also call God other things. Oftentimes, when I come to prayer, I recognize what it is I need, and I look, in my mind, I look across the scriptures for names of God that that, uh, supply what I need. So if I'm really anxious, I address my prayers to the Prince of Peace. If I'm really in need of guidance, I address my prayers to the Wonderful Counselor. If I am really scared of something, like a big conversation or something I have to face that I'm scared of, I address my, my prayers to the, li- the Lion of Judah. I address my prayers to who God is that I know is relevant to me in that moment. Begin your prayer time with who God is. What does Jesus do? He calls him the Father, intimate relationship, and also that his name would be hallowed or sacred or honored. He reminds himself that God is not just the intimate Father, but that God is also the power and authority of all things. Begin with who God is. In two lines, Jesus really clearly describes the nature of God in relationship to humanity. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was really smart, you guys. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
before he begins babbling off his long list of needs or the needs of the world, which are important and we will get there, but before he does that, he yields. So he begins with who God is, and then he invites us to yield to him. Begin with who God is, then yield to him. Right? Oh God, I know you are in control. I know that things seem crazy, but I know that you have something in mind. And I yield to that. I trust you. I know that you're the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the lion of Judah. I trust you. I I yield to your will. And what happens in this moment? First of all, we become not the primary personality at play, like when we were lording ourselves over the scriptures, right? We let God be God, and suddenly His will is primary, not ours. Whatever you say to me in this time of prayer, God, your will be done. We yield, which is to say we become open. We begin with who God is, and then we, we yield to make ourselves open to whatever he, he brings us, whatever He says, whatever His Spirit does, we become open people. And then Jesus goes on, He says, give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He begins to present his needs, but not just his, uh, you know, every single need he can possibly think of in the world. He presents, present your pressing, I'll talk about this in a minute, needs. This word pressing could be written as present needs. Jesus doesn't try to cover every single issue and every single person and every single thing. He goes, what do I need today? God, give me enough grace, mercy today to be forgiven and to forgive. Give me enough basic food, right? Give me just enough to survive. Give me enough spiritually, enough enough love, enough joy, enough patience for today. Which also, by the way, implies that we're going to pray the same thing again tomorrow, right? We're going to talk to God again tomorrow, which goes back to what we said at first, that it should be a regular practice of foxhole quiet time with God. And even this, lead us not into temptation. This is crazy because I think of it as my job not to sin and God's job to do the other spiritual things. No, he prays for, give me enough to withstand temptation today. Deliver me from the powers of evil. Deliver me from the one who's trying to draw me away from you. He puts all of that in God's hands. He prays for his present pressing needs. You can think of like as you're driving to work in the morning. Oh, God, I have this big project and it's really stressing me out. May I have your peace? May I bring your presence? Can you just help me out today? As you're driving home, God, things have not been very good with my spouse lately. We really need to talk about it and figure it out. God, could you facilitate that? Could you bring healing where there is not healing? Could you make a way where there is no way? It could be even simpler. It could be even like more mundane, okay? It could be like walking into the grocery store and going, God, I'm really tempted to choose foods that I know are really bad for me. Could you help me choose healthier foods, (laughs) right? It could be so mundane, so simple. Ask him, present your present pressing, simple, ordinary needs. I'm reading this book right now that I talked about last week. Everyone in the world should read this book. It's called The Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. But he talks about these practices as the quiet, small steps that quietly and certainly lead to Christ-likeness. 
It's these quiet, mundane, ordinary things, praying for ordinary stuff, daily bread. And me, as a millennial and a 21st century American, I want the big spiritual key. Once I have this big spiritual moment, it's all going to work. But he invites us to pray for our pressing, present needs. So as we approach God in prayer, we begin with who he is. We, We yield to him. We understand that he is in control. We are not. We yield to his will. And we present our pressing or present needs to him. And then Jesus wraps up in verse 14 and 15 with, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others your sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That seems pretty harsh, and it can seem a little bit like, wait, what's he talking about exactly? Seems almost like a departure from where we just were. But here's what I think Jesus is after. C.S. Lewis, I fit him in twice, you guys. C.S. Lewis says that prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes us. What he means by that is God's essential nature does not change. But our essential nature, deep in the core of of who we are, if we are really praying and communing with the living God, it will begin to change. And if we are experiencing God and asking him for forgiveness and receiving that forgiveness, it can't not make us more forgiving to other people. It can't not. He's talking about what true prayer looks like, and it should. When you begin to pray day after day, it should begin to transform the way you walk through the world. And as you plead for forgiveness with the Lord, oh, Lord, I did this thing. I said that thing to my kid I shouldn't have said. I'm so sorry. And you receive his forgiveness and his grace as a salve for your soul. Then it makes you walk back out into the world a different person who is no longer so quick to hold people's things against them. What Jesus is after here is saying, when you pray, it, it should and can, day after day, begin to subtly change you. Again, I go back to what I said before. Many of us leave our time of prayer, and our litmus test for if it was successful is, how do I feel? Do I feel better? Will you often feel better after going to prayer? A lot of times, yeah, for sure. Especially if you're yielding to God and you're remembering who He is, for sure. But is that the litmus test? Not necessarily. Why? I, you could be hungry, sick, cranky, tired. Maybe you didn't sleep. And that all affects your emotions. And then when you go out into the world, you're like, oh, that prayer time isn't working because I don't feel good. But how do we judge the success of our prayer time? We, be, we pray, we, we do this pattern of prayer every single day with the Lord. And at the end of the week, we look back and we go, are there subtle changes in the way I was acting? Is he equipping me for righteousness? Is he, is he changing my essential makeup? And we begin to change. And like we said last week, this quiet, mundane, ordinary practice of being in the foxhole with God, that quiet time of communion with Him, it actually gives us a new power by which we are transformed and by which we live, and it helps us bring the presence of God out into the world. It helps us be people. It begins to make us into people who have streams of living water flowing from within them. Now, some of this for us might seem like, oh, this is a good reminder. I kind of already do this in my life. And by the way, those people who have this practice and have been doing it for decades or years or whatever, find those people, make friends with them, take them out to coffee. They are spiritual giants, and you need to learn from them. So do I. But many of us are sitting here going, oh, man, I'm not good. My my schedule just does not allow for this very much. I don't spend as much time as I need to or want to. All these practices, how can I remember this? How can I remember these things every time? How can I remember to do this every time? How can I possibly make this work and really get, how can I stop thinking about what's on my phone? How can I stop, how can I do this? 
And there's great hope in the Scriptures. Let me, let me look at uh, uh, this passage from chapter, or chapter 8 of the book of Romans. Paul says this, In the same way, the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. What he's saying is, you are not alone there is help in this journey. Again, this is one of the things that when I think of my my quiet time with God, I think that's up to me. And then if I get there and I put these things into practice and I do it right, then God will show up in my life. But what's he saying? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. God, I am not good at quiet time. Help me. God, I'm trying to slow down my schedule. I can't seem to get it slow enough that I can get a half an hour with you every day. Help me. God, when I'm in the foxhole with you and I've set aside that time, I still keep thinking about my to-do list and what might be popping up on my phone in the next room. I can't seem to stop being distracted in my brain. Help me. There is help because the God that you are seeking is actually there in the room helping you, helping you read the Word helping you pray, helping you want to want this, right? Have you ever been that way where you're like, I'm not even sure I want this time with God, but I want to want it? Well, ask him, Lord, make me, I, I want to want this. Give me willingness. Give me eagerness. I need your help. The Spirit is here to help us in our weakness because just as much as we desperately need, crave, desire this intimate time with God, he needs, craves, and desires it with us. He wants to be with you in the foxhole. He wants to meet with you. He wants to change you. He wants to impart his love and power and presence into your life. Ask him for help. And as you begin these practices of, of being with God day in, day out, and setting aside this time for him, you will be surprised. You will not, everyone around you, your family will be surprised at the changes. You will be surprised at the changes. It's amazing because you start to realize that the power of God is actually at work in my life and it begins in these quiet, still moments with God. So this week, I hope you are convinced that this time is important. I hope you are convinced to make an effort with the power of God, asking him for assistance to make an effort to either begin a practice like this for the first time or to sort of re-amp up your, your current practice. That you could go deeper into this quiet space below the chaos with the Lord. And you will be amazed if you do this throughout the week next Sunday at the changes you are already seeing in your life. One story and I'll close. I have a friend who who, uh, works in Portland as an Anglican minister, leads an Anglican church. Um, And uh, he sort of discovered Anglicanism by um, hanging out with an Anglican priest who was just talking about the importance of this, daily prayer, and and this guy was going, and he was raised in an evangelical tradition like me, and in the evangelical tradition, which we're all a part of here, oftentimes it's so freeform, right? It's so like, just pray, just pray, just whatever, just pray. It's so freeform that we forget how to do it, and we get overwhelmed, and we're not sure, and we're not sure it's working, and uh. And so this, this Anglican priest was telling my friend, he said, hey, I know you're not Anglican, but here's a prayer book pray the daily prayers. And there's like, it's like long. There's, there's, it's like a 10 minutes of prayer and scripture every day. They have it laid out for the whole year. And he said, pray this every day, out loud, by yourself, in the room, quiet, pray through it, read it, and just commune with God this way. 
And this friend, who's now an Anglican priest, came to me one day, uh, or as I was talking to him, he just, we were just chatting, and he goes, yeah, when I started that, within three days, my wife goes, something's different about you. What's going on? And then he said, well, I've been doing this new thing. He was a little bit embarrassed to tell her. When you begin this quiet, persistent, small, mundane practice of being in the foxhole below the chaos with the Lord, you will be amazed at how quickly and how drastically your very nature begins to look more like Jesus. This is sort of the launching pad for everything else God wants us to do in our lives. So I encourage you, give it a try. With the power of the Spirit, give it a try. See if God doesn't begin to radically reshape who you are. I'm going to pray, then our band will come out, and we'll continue in worship to close together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to figure all this out for ourselves, but you have laid it out for us in Scripture. I ask that your spirit would empower every single person here, me included, to pause, to duck below the chaos, to get in the foxhole with you, and to have deep communion with your spirit. Help us to read scripture in a transformative way. Help us to pray in a transformative way. And I ask that as we do this, we would begin to see your spirit changing us from the inside out. We love you, God. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you're listening. Be with us as we put this into practice. In your name, amen.